Never ye. Actually, want to uh, begin by just uh, uh, reading for you uh, a couple of verses or a verse and a half from the King James version, the old authorized version, in James chapter five, because there it says. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering and affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. It's that uh, rendering of the AV, the patience of Job, that has given us the... um, the aphorism that at least used to be very common in the English language. Someone has got the patience of Job. And by that, we generally mean they bear up under enormous trial, they don't complain, they keep silent, they never yield to vindictiveness and anger and rage. They're always mild, always forgiving, always gentle. And as such, of course, they are absolutely nothing like Job. Those of you who've been here for the last few weeks will remember, actually, Job's story is one of innocent suffering. Job loses absolutely everything he has, uh, despite, or actually even in one sense, because he is the most uh, righteous person on the earth, says uh, the beginning of the book. And the main body of the book has Job debating with his rather dodgy friends the whole question of why he is suffering as an innocent man. Job's words are some of the most intemperate words in the whole Bible. Far from never complaining, actually for chapter after chapter he complains without end. He's actually so full of uh, words that at times they sort of tumble over each other, defying the rules of grammar, displaying, I think, for for us the, the most explosively angry mind. He is not mild. He is not inclined to forgive either his friends or God, for that matter. He's certainly not gentle. Why then is it that James, in the New Testament, speaks admiringly of the patience of Job? Well, I think one partial answer is that in reality, unfortunately, the translators of the authorised version made a bit of a mistake at this point. They shouldn't have translated it the patience of Job. They should have translated it the perseverance of Job. Job persevered. But actually, I don't think that gets us very far along the road. Perseverance as well tends in our minds to carry over tones of... of, uh, Uh, tranquility, of just steadily pursuing dogged uh, duty, doesn't it? No complaining, no turning aside from the right path, not phased by the emotional of of the moment. A persevering person simply gets on with uh, living as they are called to live. Is that Job? I don't think that's Job, at least uh, uh, not on the surface of it. Through most of his book, Job is actually in a tumult of emotion. James's recommendation of this man, I think, points us to something very, very important. 
It alerts us to the fact that the true nature of Christian perseverance is very different from the way we usually think of Christian perseverance. Actually, it's not only James who commands Job. Last week, you remember if you were here, that God himself commends Job. Job's so-called friends uh, are criticized in chapter 42, verse 7. He says, uh, I am angry with uh, you and your two friends, he says to Eliphaz, one of the friends. I am angry because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, I think it would be wrong to think that God is entirely endorsing everything that Job has said throughout the book. But in God's mind, clearly, the essence of the way that Job interacts with his problem is approved of. Job's comforters, as we saw last week, are a model not to be followed. But Job himself is a model to be followed. And that's what I want us to explore this morning. How it is that Job's interaction with uh, his troubles gives us a model of Christian perseverance. Well, I think firstly, we need to uh, uh, spend some time getting into our minds very clearly this truth. Perseverance does not involve suppressing our emotions. Perseverance does not involve suppressing our emotions. I think this is one of the most important lessons that we need to learn. By and large, the history of Western Christianity has taught us something quite different. By and large, the church, in fact, has been dominated by people who, who have taught that we need to be uh, 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 controlled only by our rational faculties. They must rule our emotions. And in one sense, that's, that's very true. The great truths of the, of the Christian faith are far more important than how we happen to feel today. But you see, Britain suffers from a thing called the stiff upper lip, doesn't it? They say it was uh, 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 boys developed it when they had to be left at boarding schools. And in order not to uh, show that they were about to cry, they developed this uh, very stiff lip so they didn't tremble. So many, many people, in fact, in uh, Britain especially, have not uh, so much controlled their emotions as completely repressed them. And that, that is very, very dangerous. It's actually not an authentically Christian attitude. It owes much more to ancient Greek philosophers than it does to Christianity. It actually owes much more to the Buddha meditating under the bow tree than it does to Jesus Christ weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, perseverance, in fact, very often is combined with a deep expression of emotion. There is not automatically sin involved in expressing our emotions. 
And look, look at how Job, in fact, uh, uh, in his pilgrimage develops. First of all, in fact, he does seem to have almost uh, complete control over his emotions. In chapter 1, verse 21, we saw Job saying this when, all the tr- when some of the troubles had come upon him. Uh, sorry, verse, verse uh, 20 it is really. And naked I came from my mother's womb, he says, naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now he's got it under control. He's, he's, he's managed to achieve British type spirituality, hasn't he? But then in verse three, he seemed, in chapter three, he seems to crack. After this, says the beginning of chapter three, Job opened his mouth and cursed. And many, many commentators have interpreted this verse as the point when Job's laudable spiritual resolution begins to fall apart under the strain. there, There may be an element of that. But it has to be said that God's favorable verdict on Job comes after tens of chapters of him apparently falling apart. Now, Job will have to repent, as we will uh, see later. And many of the things he says are not orthodox or even particularly laudable. But uh, this is not the beginning of Job's failure in chapter 3. It is the beginning of Job's pilgrimage to a deeper faith. The first thing he uh, 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 rails against is uh, his own life. I want to notice, uh, you, you to notice though, that as he begins to speak, he still does exercise some restraint. Let's just read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11 to get a flavor of what he's saying. May the day of my birth perish, the night it was said a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness, may God not care about it, may no light shine upon it, may darkness and deep shadow claim it once more, may a cloud settle over it, may blackness overwhelm its light, that night may thick darkness seize it, may it not be included amongst the days of the year or or be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Now this is one angry man, isn't it? It's an outburst of deep vitriol and agony, and yet it is still restrained up to a point. His speech is restrained. We see that in the nature of his curse. Back in chapter 2, you remember, his wife invites him to curse God and die, but he doesn't curse God here. He could have actually cursed himself, but he doesn't do that. No, He curses the day that he was born. He rages against his circumstances, but he does not allow that rage either to destroy him or his relationship with God. And he's restrained in his actions too. He longs for death, doesn't he? 
and yet he does not attempt to commit suicide. In some ways, that's, uh, that's uh, surprising because he's so vehement that he would love to die. But no, for Job, suicide would be a cop-out. And he would love to be dead. But while he is still alive, he is not going to give up. For all his restraint, though, for all the ways that he does limit what he says, the, the Job displays a remarkable freedom in what he says. For chapter after chapter, he tells anybody who will listen what he thinks about God and what he thinks about his friends. Makes the most excruciatingly painful reading. And yet in my experience, most Christians have been taught that they must never, ever speak as Job speaks. Is that true? When they feel emotions like Job feels welling up inside them, they are told they must not ever give it voice. They are taught, in fact, and not only to, to, to be uh, overwhelmed by these horrifying emotions, but to add guilt as an extra layer to it, that they even feel that way. Sadly, some Christians never, ever voice their pain and disappointment because they actually expect no real answer from God. They've been brought up with uh, Christian cliches, some of them. They think God is the God of the snappy one-liner. Now, praise the Lord anyway. All is for the best. God does not condemn Job. God does not fire cliches at Job. Who is it who condemns Job? Who is it who gives Job cliché answers? It's actually the useless friends who do that. God approves of this man. And God does not brush him off with trite and cheap words. Patience, though, is the last thing that Job thinks he's exercising. Chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 8 to 12, for instance. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient do I have the strength of stone? Is my flesh bronze? See, he is not inclined to knuckle under and just accept these cliché answers. And he's vicious with friends who try to tell him to. Verse 14, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that cease to flow in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Caravans turn aside from their roots and go up to the wasteland and perish. 
The caravans of Timar look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed because they had been confident. They arrive there only to be disappointed. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. He's drawing a picture here, isn't he? Of merchants setting out across the desert. Only to find that the oasis that they relied upon for their very lives is no more. You friends are like that to me, he says. When the going gets tough, when I enter the wasteland, when my life becomes a desert, I turn to you and you give me nothing. And from his friends, Job then turns on to to, to the word of God itself. In chapter uh, 7, Job actually parodies Psalm 8, chapter 7, verse 17. What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? See, you know Psalm 8 almost certainly. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And Job says, frankly, God, I wouldn't mind if you were a little bit less mindful of me right now. Thank you. All your attention has brought me is not glory and honor, misery and disaster. goes on again and again and again. He derides his false comforters and he shouts at God. And James tells us, consider the perseverance of Job. Now there is something uh, profoundly important in this man's turmoil. Something that we need to learn. I, I, I look at someone like Job and then I turn back to my own experience and, and those are people I know and love and I wonder, I wonder whether our tranquility sometimes does not stem from a deep faith but from lack of faith. Whether in fact we are so fearful perhaps that God might condemn us that we dare not even own up to the emotions that seethe under our Rests. Whether we are so doubting that God has any real answer that we do not dare ask the questions for fear that the answer will be a big nothing. You see, Job's turmoil stems from a very profound faith, from an absolute determination that he worships a God who should give answers and who can give answers. And he will not let that go. Uh, He uh, makes a very interesting observation about his friends in chapter 6. I don't know whether you noticed it. 
He says in chapter 6, verse 21, you see something dreadful and are afraid. Why are his friends afraid? It's Job who's suffering. There's no indication that they think that they might contract Job's illness. No, their fear stems from the fact that their nice, ordered world is disrupted. Their magnificent theological facade, with all their accumulated wisdom, is cracked by Job's innocent suffering. And they would rather reach for the polyfiller and the cheap wood chip wallpaper than re-examine the foundations. They are afraid. And that fear spells death to any, any faith. Through all his profound and disturbing emotions, God says of Job, he has spoken well of me. Don't do it then. When something disturbs you, when something stirs your emotions, when something puzzles you, do not slip back into borrowed orthodoxy. Do not deny the emotion that there is in your heart. Face it as Job does. It is the hard way, the way that God recommends. Christian perseverance does not involve denying our emotion. It involves expressing emotion, as Job does. Secondly, I want us to see in Job's agony, he demonstrates that perseverance is about the pursuit of a relationship. Now, there's something very surprising about uh, Job's speeches something that is missing from his speeches. He speaks almost never about the possessions that he's lost or the children that he's lost or, in fact, the details of his physical suffering. You know, those things are always there, but they are not central in his mind. Because for him, you see, they are a sign of something far more disturbing that has happened to him. His main concern is he feels he's lost God. Somehow, despite the fact that he's more righteous than anyone else in the whole world, God has struck him down and left him with no hope. And instinctively, he knows this is unjust, and that God, in his experience right now, is absent. And he longs to meet God face to face. Job's agony in all of this is that he cannot argue it out with God. He says that again and again. Look at chapter 9, for instance, verses, verse 14. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it's a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, 
Who will summon him? Look at chapter 13, verses 20 to 23. He says virtually the same thing again. Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? What is he to do when God is unfindable? That's his big agony. His friends know what what he should do. He should uh, recite the creed and mindlessly praise the Lord. His wife knows what he should do. He should give up, curse God and die. But Job must search for God. Chapter 23, verse 1, Job says, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling, verse 8. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Whole world for Job is empty of God. But he will go on. More than anything else, you see, he will not take a simple answer. He will not deny the truth by cursing God. He will not acknowledge some false God, false uh, sin or guilt that his uh, friends try to, to place on him. He wants a true and honest relationship with God. And in chapter 31, he finally gets climactically to uh, uh, the nub of his case. He restates his case at length. And there, he's not claiming, claiming total sinlessness. Now he speaks of righting his own wrong, of not concealing his sins. He's not trying to say that he has no sin. He's trying to say that he doesn't have, he hasn't been living an ungodly life. That if he looks at himself in comparison with the rest of the world, there is no reason why he uniquely should suffer. Why then has God struck him down and never bothered to show his face? He goes through that in the chapter at length, and then he says in verse 35, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I now sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. Like a prince, I would approach him. Perhaps it is that concern more than anything else that God approves of in Job. 
So he's not very politically correct. So Job is rather uncouth at times. So sometimes he overstates his case. So he even laps into self, lapses into self-pity at some point. But he wants to know God. He wants to approach God. He wants a relationship with God. And God actually loves that. Now, how different is our response to pain and trouble? Think about it. Think about how people react when trouble comes their way. Our tragedies, our inconveniences, our pain, our sufferings. Now, all that is in our mind is what we have lost, who we have lost, the trial that has come upon us. We are obsessed with that because actually, all too often, we treat God as just a dispenser of blessings. You know, God needs to be as reliable as the milkman every day delivering blessings on our doorstep. And when he is no longer so, well, just like the milkman, we can dump him and go to Tesco's, can't we? God had better know that if he doesn't provide the blessings that we want, then there's plenty more gods in the marketplace. Job's attitude is absolutely opposite from that. He knows there is only one God. He knows there is only one God worth knowing. And his main agony and concern is that he has lost contact with the only God. He longs be back in relationship with him. I wonder where you stand on that. Many of us perhaps have been through difficult times. I wonder what was uppermost in your mind when the trouble struck. Was it the trouble itself? Was it all the pain and hardship that I'm going through? Or was it that suddenly God felt distant? And that was the most important thing in our heart. It is vital that that is what is most important to us, as it was for Job. Because that in eternity is the only thing that lasts. Christian perseverance is primarily pursuit of a relationship with God. And one more thing we need to uh, learn just briefly. Perseverance with God is never disappointed. Finally, in this book, God does reveal himself. When he does, it's actually not at all comfortable. Look at the first three verses of chapter 38, for instance. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Job needs a rebuke, that's certain. But rebuke or no rebuke, you see, this moment is a moment of massive relief for Job because this is what he has been shouting for 
for, for chapter after chapter, for God to speak, for him to have a relationship with God. So for Job, in one sense, these are the most exciting words in the book. We'll look at the answer that God gives next week in uh, in some more detail. But for now, we must just see this one thing. Job is reconciled with God. Chapter 42, very last chapter of the book. Job replied, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job needed to learn some deep lessons. He needed to repent. He needed even, in one sense, to despise the agony that he had been through. But don't forget this. Job approved of that pilgrimage. God approved of that pilgrimage. God approved, in the end, of the path that he had taken because God knew Job needed to go through that process before he could renew and deepen his relationship with him. And now he has done that. Surely I had heard of you, he says. But now my eyes have seen you. Perseverance is not disappointed. God does give a relationship with him to all those who long for it. Maybe that you have been seeking God one way or another for a long, long time. Maybe it's been through times of particular trouble. Maybe it has been through painful times. Or you may need to go through those times. You may need to spend time Shouting even at God. But if it is with an underlying sense that we long for the only God who is there, for the God of justice, for the God who will do all things well, then God ultimately will reward that pilgrimage with a renewed relationship with him. And there is nothing in all eternity more precious than that. Job says that his faith now, after his suffering, is profoundly deeper than his faith before. Before he had only heard of God. But now he has seen God. God can bring the most beautiful things out of times of severe trial. Perseverance is not disappointed. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. As James says, consider the patience of Job. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father,
we have each of us been through our own particular pilgrimage up to this point. Some of us have been through difficult times, Lord. We pray that you would give us an openness of heart before you that is not afraid to express unsightly emotions. But more than anything else, Lord, that you would give us a hunger for you personally which never leaves us and that you would satisfy that hunger. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus says he will never turn away those who seek you. So we pray with confidence that we would move each one of us from hearing of you to seeing you. In Christ's name, Amen.